0: Well, last week, Elizabeth and I sat down to watch a movie. Michael was asleep. I had my cup of vanilla rooibos, and Elizabeth had her popcorn. And we sat down to try to find a movie on Netflix, which I don't know about you, but at the best of times can be hard to find a good movie, but even more so in COVID when it's one of the few activities we have to do. But one thing that Elizabeth and I both agree on is that true stories are great. We love True Stories because it teaches us about who's gone before us and what that can tell us about today. And we managed to find a movie about a journalist who travels to the Soviet Union. And he travels to the Soviet Union in 1933, and he goes there while Joseph Stalin is leading the country. From the outside, the country looks magnificent, and people are looking at it thinking the wonders of communism. But the problem is reporters and journalists can only travel to Moscow. They can't get outside of that and explore the rest of the Soviet Union. And so this journalist travels to Moscow, manages to escape from Moscow, the capital, and go out across the Soviet Union. And he finds the secret that Joseph Stalin had been hiding from everyone. There's a massive famine across the land. People are starving and people are resorting to cannibalism. And to this day, the death toll for the famine in 1933 is estimated to be about 4 million deaths. As Elizabeth and I were watching this movie and as we got to the end of it, we were thinking, this only happened 90 years ago. How could this happen in this world so close to where we live? This surely is an example of failed leadership. We're thinking, who can we trust to lead us? And I imagine like many of you this past week, Elizabeth and I have been following what's going on in Afghanistan, and our hearts have been breaking. Our hearts have been breaking as we see local Afghanis struggling to get on a US plane that's leaving the country. Our hearts have been breaking as we've seen Australians trying to get out of the country, but they can't get out because the airport is being locked down. And though I don't know a lot about the situation, as Elizabeth and I look at it, we think, Surely this is an example of failed leadership somewhere. We're thinking, who can we trust to lead us? And actually in our passage today, that we see David struggling with the same question. David's at the end of his life. He's been a great king in many respects, but he's also been a terrible king. And he's looking across Israel and he's thinking, who will lead this nation rightly? Who can we trust to lead the nation of Israel? And he's thinking, what should the people of Israel look for in a king? And as David asks this question, we're gonna see that he provides two essential attributes for the king to come. Firstly, he says, we need a king who rules in the fear of God. And secondly, we need a king who reigns forever. And David knows that this king isn't just gonna be the ruler over Israel, but it's gonna be the ruler over the whole world. And so as David sits on his deathbed at 1000 BC, David's not just looking to the next one or two kings, but he's looking through the passage of time to 30 AD. And there in 30 AD, David sees the coronation of the king of the world. And that is of course, King Jesus. But firstly, we need a king who rules in the fear of God. Come with me as we look at this passage and we see that we need a king who doesn't rule in the fear of men. And we don't need a king who thinks he isn't accountable to anyone. No, we need a king who rules in the fear of God. And David tells us his first essential attribute of the king to come. Remember these are David's last words. You could imagine David lying on his deathbed, old and frail. He's sitting in his palace, looking across the land of Israel thinking who's gonna lead this people. And so he grabs some ink and some parchment and he writes down this first essential attribute. Come read with me verses three and four. David says, the God of Israel spoke, the rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth." David says that the king to come needs to rule over the people in righteousness, meaning he needs to do what is right and fair for the people. Not being self-interested in thinking, how can I serve myself, but thinking how can he serve his people and doing what is right for his people. But David also says the king to come needs to rule in the fear of God. But you might wonder, well, what is the fear of God? And why is the fear of God good for a leader? Well, firstly, the fear of God is fearing God above everything else. It's fearing God above his people. It's fearing God above his family. And it's fearing God above all other nations. But you might wonder, well, why is the fear of God good for a leader? It's good because it reminds the leader that they're responsible to God for their leadership. It reminds them that God will hold them accountable for how they lead. And David says if a king rules in righteousness and the fear of God, then the result will be beautiful. In verse 4, David gives us two pictures of what a king ruling in the fear of God will look like. Come read with me in verse four. David says, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. The first picture is of a sunrise on a cloudless morning. Imagine you're out in rural Australia with open plains around you and the sun is just peaked above the horizon and you see red and gold streaming across the sky. It's a beautiful picture, and that's the picture of what it is to live under this king. It's a beautiful thing to live under the king who rules in the fear of God. But there's also growth. The second picture is of grass growing from the sunshine after rain. When a king rules in the fear of God, people will grow and flourish. Think about the different leaders you've seen whether in the home or the workplace or in church. A good leader has people flourishing under them. They enable people to get their work done and they bring the best out of people. God wants a king who cares more about the people he's serving than himself. And we see this reality play out in the world. Nations collapse under tyrants. Churches fall apart under abusive leaders the only person who always lived and ruled in the fear of God was King Jesus. He continually thought, how can I serve my people? Think about how Jesus served his people as he walked the dirt roads of Nazareth. When the leper came to Jesus in Mark chapter one, he didn't send him away, and he didn't ignore him like the rest of society. Instead, he reached out, he touched him, and he healed him. Or when the woman with an incurable sickness came up and snuck up behind Jesus and touched his garment in Mark chapter 5. Jesus didn't rebuke her as she expected. Instead, he encouraged her and he healed her. And he encouraged her because he had faith in him. Or think about when the little children were being brought to Jesus in Mark chapter 10. The disciples were trying to send the children and the parents away They were thinking an important teacher like Jesus doesn't have time for children. But Jesus rebukes his disciples, welcomes the children and blesses them. In Jesus, we see a righteous king, one who serves his people and one who rules in the fear of God. Jesus was even thinking this as he hung out on the cross crying out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was in pain and suffering, and he didn't have to stay there, but he did so that he could pay for our sins. On that cross, Jesus was thinking of you. That's love. And so God has provided for us a king who rules in the fear of God In Jesus. How are you going to apply that to your lives this week? The first way i want you to consider is who do you fear do you live in the fear of god jesus says in matthew chapter 10 verse 28 do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell this truth came running home at me as i was preparing this sermon this week As I was struggling to prepare the sermon and pull together the thoughts in my mind, I started to fear a lot of things. I wanted to come before you today and preach a sermon that would be from the Bible, that would be clear, and that would point you to Jesus. That's a good goal for a sermon. But as I struggled to do that, I started fearing you guys, you who would be listening to me today. I started worrying whether you'd think, he's a terrible student minister, he can't preach. And I started worrying about how Toby would respond to me preaching a dud sermon. I had many fears on my mind, but the fear of God had slipped in my mind. I needed to hear Jesus' words. I needed to hear to fear God above men. Perhaps you have had a similar experience, a time where you have been more worried about people than living in the fear of God. Who do you fear? If you live in the fear of God, you won't distort the truth on your work report. And if you live in the fear of God, you'll tell your friends and your workmates about how you've been attending church online. And if you live in the fear of God, you'll tell a godly friend about how you've been struggling with pornography and ask for help. I could keep going on at what living in the fear of God would look like, but I don't know your exact situation. But you do. You know your exact situation. What would living in the fear of God look like for you this week? Secondly, if we know that bad leadership destroys everything, and we see that the fear of God is the key to good leadership, then number one, we should be looking for the fear of God in our leaders. Would you consider praying this week for those who are on staff at church, or those who lead you in community groups, or those who lead you in your service teams? Would you pray asking that they would fear God above men this week? So firstly we've seen that we need a king who rules in the fear of God but a king who rules in the fear of God isn't enough they're only as good as long as they live and David knows this he's on his deathbed waiting to die and even if a righteous king succeeds him what next what happens when that king dies and in fact we see this exact story play out in Israel after David, King Solomon rules, and he's a great king, and he lives in the fear of God. But soon enough, he dies. And after he dies, the kingdom is split in two. And the kings that come after him fail to rule in the fear of God, and Israel falls apart. That's essentially the story of the books of one and two kings that come straight after 2 Samuel, where we are today. Therefore, we need a king who rules in the fear of God and one who reigns forever, one who will never die. And David speaks about such a king. Remember, here David is, fragile and dying on his deathbed and writing out on the parchment, the two essential attributes for the king of Israel. Come and read with me verse five. David says, if my house were not right with God, Surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part. Surely he would not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire. David's saying that the second essential attribute for the King of Israel is connected to this everlasting covenant God has made with David. This covenant that David is referring to we see in 2 Samuel chapter seven. Andy preached through that for us about four weeks ago. And we saw that God declares that a king will come from David's offspring, one who will reign forever. And so David knows that through his family line, the whole world is meant to be blessed. That the promise made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that the nations would be blessed through him, now rests on David's family. David's looking at his family and thinking, how are we gonna produce a line of righteous kings? How are we gonna be a blessing to the whole world? My son Amnon raped his sister Tamar. My son Absalom is trying to steal the kingdom from me. David's looking at his family and thinking, who, are we going to, who can we trust to lead us? But at the end of David's life, He's saying we need a king who fears God and who will reign forever. And looking at David's family, this outlook might look bleak. But David's hope isn't unsure. In fact, David describes this covenant as arranged and secured in every part. David knows that it will come true because God has always shown himself to be trustworthy. And like David, we too can say that this covenant is arranged and secured in every part because this king has already arrived in the person of Jesus. And we don't have to be unsure about this. Believing that Jesus lived, died and was resurrected on the third day isn't a case of blind faith. In fact, it's just a case of looking at the facts and asking what makes the most sense. If you've looked at the evidence, you know that Jesus lived in Nazareth during the first century and was crucified by Pontius Pilate. These things are even recorded by non-Christian historians such as Josephus and Tacitus. The real question isn't, did Jesus live and die? The real question is, did Jesus rise again three days later? And there's a lot of ways that we could try and answer this question. But for me, three of the most compelling pieces of evidence for Jesus's resurrection is this. Firstly, the first piece of evidence is the empty tomb. Jesus's body was placed in a tomb, and three days later, the body could not be found. The tomb was secured by a big stone and multiple Roman soldiers. And if the tomb had not been empty, someone would have produced Jesus's body and squashed all of Christianity from there. In fact, Giza Vermese, a Jewish scholar and not a Christian, and was part of the university, part of the faculty at the University of Oxford, said this. When every argument has been considered and weighed, the only conclusion acceptable to the historian must be that, and he continues on but concludes: the woman who set out to pay their respects to Jesus found to their consternation, not a body, but an empty tomb. Basically, Vermees is saying that Jesus's tomb was empty. So that's the first piece of evidence. The second piece of evidence is the accounts of Jesus's resurrection. There are well-documented accounts of Jesus appearing in all four gospels, as well as 1 Corinthians 15. And this is just looking at these documents as historical sources, which they are. And 1 Corinthians 15, three to eight, describes the resurrection appearances. And we are even told that Jesus appeared to 500 people at the same time. This passage is understood to be a creed that the early church knew. And Pinchas Lapidi, another Jewish scholar and not a Christian, describes the creed of 1 Corinthians 15 like this. He says, This unified piece of tradition, which soon was solidified into a formula of faith, may be considered as, an eye, as a statement of eyewitnesses. Basically, Lepidus is saying that this is a statement of witnesses. These people saw that Jesus was resurrected. And the third and final piece of evidence I want to bring before you today is the disciples changed lives. Now you might suggest that the disciples were just lying, but there's no motive for Jesus' followers to lie about the resurrection. Many of the apostles were killed for their faith. Christians were a persecuted group at the time. There was no advantage for the early followers of Jesus to lie about his resurrection. And so for us today, believing in Jesus's resurrection is not blind faith or wishful thinking. In fact, for me, it's just a case of what makes the most sense of the facts. Therefore, like David, we can say that this covenant is arranged and secured in every part. We know that Jesus has been raised to life, never to die again. We know that Jesus will reign forever and in fact, Jesus is reigning right now. He's the king over the whole world and he's sitting at the right hand of the father. But Jesus is patient and he's currently giving the world time to, rec- and he's currently giving the world time to recognize that he is the king. He's patiently waiting for people to return to him. The Bible tells us that when Jesus returns, It will be really good for those who trust him and really bad for those who reject him. Do you know where you stand with Jesus? If not, could I encourage you to come along to Christianity Explored online? We run it every week and we'd love to have you come along and ask some of the questions that you have and examine the evidence for yourself. If you're keen to come along, you can let us know in the contact form below in the video description. But if you are a follower of Jesus, does your life look like someone who is convinced that Jesus will reign forever? Martin Luther, the Christian reformer in the 16th century believed this. During 1527, a plague known as Black Death struck Wittenberg where he was living. Many people encouraged him to leave so that he could avoid the danger of death, but he stayed. Martin Luther stayed not for his own benefit, but he stayed so that he could help those who were sick. And he stayed so that he could preach Christ to those who don't know him. Luther knew that Jesus would reign forever and his life was secured in him. How does knowing this shape the way you live? If you know that Jesus will reign forever, the uncertainty of COVID won't rattle you. And if you know that Jesus will reign forever, then the failure of human leaders won't destroy you. And if you know that Jesus will reign forever, then you can face death with confidence because Jesus has promised you eternal life. David had this hope. David could face death with confidence because he knew of the King to come in Jesus. This is our last talk in the series on the incredible story of King David. We've called it the King's Heart because through the story of David, we see a glimpse of the perfect King to come in Jesus. We see a glimpse of his heart. The King who rules in the fear of God and who reigns forever. And so as I think back to the leadership of Stalin and Soviet Union, my heart breaks People were starving to death. Failed leadership is a real problem for our world and it continues to be. But God has provided for us a king that won't fail us. He won't fail us because he rules in the fear of God and he won't fail us because he reigns forever. And God hasn't left us in any doubt who this king is. He's made it clear that this king is Jesus. Will you pray with me? thanking God for King Jesus. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for sending Jesus to come and lead us out of the mess we've made. Thank you that Jesus is the righteous one, the one who rules in the fear of God. And thank you that he reigns forever. Help us now to cast our eyes upon Jesus, the one we can trust to lead us. In his name we pray. Amén.